Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast that checks in every week with the people at the centre of the debates about where Canadian policy should be headed, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We speak with the thinkers, doers and deciders about how good policy can make for a better Canada. We'll be putting out a new episode every Thursday, so please join us weekly if you're up for a deep dive into the policy choices in front of us and the trade-offs involved. Here's the host of Policy Speaking, Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of the Globe and Mail. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Edward Greenspan. Today, we'll be talking about Canada's economic response to the pandemic with David Dodge and the upcoming budget and budget season generally. But first, Katie Davey, our executive producer, is here with us. Hi, Katie. Hi, Ed, and happy policy speaking one year anniversary. We've been doing this now for a whole year. Yeah, it's sort of actually, I guess it started around my birthday, not that I want to reveal too much about my birthday, but I think the first policy speaking was a day after my birthday, and wow, it's been a year. It uh, has gone by quickly in some ways. Yeah, it has, that's for sure, and it's it's funny because, of course, this is also budget season, which is what we're going to talk about today, but last year, that wasn't what we were talking about at all because um, there, there actually just wasn't a federal budget last year. That is true. We had the the year of the missing budget and so the pandemic threw everything awry for everybody in so many ways and uh, spending and uh, revenues were uh, so unstable, jobs were so unstable. Uh, It was hard to know when things would right themselves. It's pretty unprecedented to go two years, uh, more than two years without a budget. And for those of us who love budgets, well, we've missed having them. Well, I was just thinking that, Ed, I, I can't believe every year you get a budget for your birthday. Well, sometimes it comes a bit earlier, but yeah, I'm close to March 31st, which is year end for governments in Canada. And uh, what I get for my birthday is I, I get to fill out my tax forms. That's uh, a real treat. Yeah, that uh, that is indeed. Um But this year we will have a budget, um, and it'll be the first budget for Finance Minister Christia Freeland. So, um, you know, well, not only that, but obviously a monumental pandemic budget. So what are you thinking about as we head into, I guess, we're what, three weeks away now from the budget? Yeah, April 19th is budget day in Canada, late, later than normal. And I think it will be quite a monumental budget. I think Minister Freeland will have... uh, an opportunity to do uh, you know, one of those budget for the ages. In my budget following lifetime uh, on a federal level, the 1995 budget was the uh, certainly the most monumental. It was the one that really addressed the deficit situation that had been building up in Canada uh, since the 1970s. And uh, by 1995 was you know, pretty much getting out of control. And, and that was... Uh, an extraordinary budget with uh, a lot of buildup, a lot of uh, information beforehand, and a budget which uh, inspired, uh, partly inspired a, a book that I co-wrote with uh, my colleague, Anthony Wilson-Smith, because 1995 was a year both of the Quebec referendum and this uh, history-turning budget. So it was a, a big year in policy and politics, for sure. And I suspect 2021 will go down similarly. Well, I think there's no question about that, but 
you know, it'll be interesting to see exactly how this budget is is kind of shaped and shifted. I think we've we've got the early um, inklings, of course, that there will be a, a pretty massive deficit, uh, which isn't really surprising. But of course, you know, we've just to your point there, and, and we've been doing some work with a variety of economists talking about, you know, things like fiscal anchors and, and what that will mean kind of moving forward. I won't get into that because I, uh, as you know, am, am no economist myself, but, you know, what, I guess, yeah, I don't know how to even frame it. What what are some of the things that you're kind of looking for um, or, what, or what are some of the things that you expect to happen kind of in this conversation? Well, I think there's a couple of things I'll really be looking for uh, in the budget and, you know, the size of the deficit won't be uh, the first one, whether, because as you say, you know, we know it will be huge. The cost of servicing that deficit will be interesting and what those look like going forward. Interest rates are still low, but long-term bonds have been going up a little bit. So that might put a little bit more pressure on the cost of uh, servicing debt. I don't think it'll be radical at this point. I think the main thing is how will the government balance its spending or try to rebalance its spending between consumption now helping people maintain their incomes. And of course, it's put out more money than income lost over the past year. And investment in, in future income in, in the kinds of industries that will produce some good jobs for people and you know what it will do there. And particularly in that regard, the industry that probably the greatest transition is the energy industry, because it has not just the pandemic with which to deal with. And of course, airlines and, and many other industries have been hit by the pandemic, but the energy industry also has to deal with the climate change situation, the transition underway in energy. So it'll be interesting to watch how the government signals its investments and its intentions in that regard. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because, of course, we're recording this a few days after the Supreme Court ruled on uh, the carbon price and ruled on its constitutionality. Um, so, you know, does that lay the framework for kind of a federal budget that takes more of an aggressive approach to transitioning or to addressing, um, you know, investment in carbon capture, for example, or those types of technologies? Yeah, I think that's going to be a really interesting thing uh, to watch for. Absolutely. The affirmation by the um, Supreme Court of the federal government's ability to create, you know, what they call a backstop and essentially, you know, that there will be um, carbon pricing in Canada and carbon pricing that is going to be going up steadily between now and 2030 and create um, incentives for reducing carbon and for, uh, for change. You know, I think that, you know, kind of lays down the foundation. Now, the government started laying down that foundation with some announcements in December. And now the next question is, are we going to have industrial policy around the change to decarbonization? And what role will the oil and gas industry play in this? And you mentioned carbon capture. That's become a big part of the questioning around the world. Canada used to lead in carbon capture. It's been a very expensive proposition, but as most things with technology gets better over time, we've now probably fallen behind the United States and the United Kingdom and Norway and other countries. So I expect we will see some signals in the budget of further fiscal incentives, infrastructure type incentives to get uh, more investment in carbon capture. And that also then lays a foundation for the future hydrogen economy because to have 
one form of hydrogen, the most prevalent form probably at the beginning of uh, of a hydrogen economy, blue hydrogen, as they say from natural gas, you need to have carbon capture. You need to separate the hydrocarbon into the hydrogen and the carbon, and then make sure the carbon doesn't get burned and go up in the atmosphere. So it gets buried or it gets used in other ways. Yeah, so it sounds to me like there's a real opportunity for this budget to be kind of an investment budget that makes smart decisions like some that you just mentioned. And, you know, I think, what's kind of fascinating is for for my generation we're not really i think and i you know i won't speak on behalf of the entire generation but at least uh i guess in my close circles we'll say uh we're not as worried about the kind of debt and deficit as um as other generations seem to be and i think you know a big part of that is because we're looking for some of these you know massive economic transitions, whether it's addressing climate change, addressing the kind of gaps in the social safety net and things like that. And so if there is a nod towards that kind of a smart spending, uh, the debt and deficit feel less bad, I guess, <laughs> if I can frame it that way. Wow, I, I have a feeling that you're going to turn this into <laughs> a script of a disaster or a horror movie here in, in that you don't have to worry about the debt and deficit, which your generation will have um, much more opportunity to pay for than my generation, but that you were, I thought you were gonna say you don't have to worry about it because uh, the outlook is so apocalyptic in any case uh, on climate change. My generation is hoping that we can help, you know, get things right before we uh, shuttle off uh, the stage and, and make sure that, you know, your generation and future generations will live on a planet that is safe and, and, and you know, with an economy that works for you and allows you to have the kind of quality of life that uh, that you know we all want uh, in this country and in this world. And there's a lot of hard, um, important decisions that have to be made. Now, I just I don't want to change the subject entirely, but we've gone oh probably seven, eight, nine minutes without talking about New Brunswick, your home <laughs> province, which is uh, you know a cardinal rule of the show is we must talk about New Brunswick. And I noticed that. Uh, Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan raised New Brunswick last week as a model for the post-Supreme Court decision policies that he would like to implement in Saskatchewan. So can you tell us anything about what New Brunswick's doing and why and what makes it special? Well, Ed, if, if you wanted me to tell you what makes New Brunswick special, we'd be here all day. So I'll, I'll stick to this uh, particular question. But yeah, so uh, so look, New Brunswick took an interesting approach, you know, four or five years back now when the conversation around a carbon price was happening. And and basically what they said was, um, and I'll, I'll note this was actually under a liberal government at the time, they said, look, we already have a pretty high gas tax. Um, that is what you're asking us to do. So that will be our carbon tax, basically. It's, that's a bit of an oversimplification of, of the decision, but it was essentially, you know, we'll we will scale back what we take um, to kind of have that be the rate of carbon tax. Um, and that was actually initially ruled by the federal government as insufficient. However, um, the government changed. Uh, and the conservative government in the province said, nope, this is this is still what we're going to do. We believe it is sufficient. We believe it is kind of with the spirit of intent of, of what you're asking. Uh, and, and then the federal government ruled it uh, was indeed within the spirit and intent of what they're asking. So um, it's kind of odd, quite frankly, that uh, how that played out. Um, but that's what 
the New Brunswick government has been doing now for the last uh, number of years. And because it has been approved by the federal government, I think you will see Saskatchewan and other jurisdictions that um, haven't kind of sorted out what their model will be look to that model, uh, especially if they already have their own provincial gas tax. I don't know frankly, if Saskatchewan does, I, I assume they might. Um, but really, that's that's essentially the, the nuts and bolts of it. Like I said, a bit of an oversimplification, but... Um, so where does the money from the gas tax, so it used to go into provincial coffers, and where does it go now? Yeah, so it goes to a separate, essentially, like climate fund, and essentially, they have to spend... Uh, that money on climate related initiatives. And so every year that coffer grows and grows because the the kind of price they're using from the gas tax moves more and more over there. Um, the one interesting thing though that that has happened is um, uh, they don't seem that budget line doesn't seem to be spending down. So there's often money left over there. So it is just kind of sitting there in the provincial coffers. So um, although again, it is supposed to be earmarked towards climate related initiatives. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the plan. That's what has been working. And like I said, the federal government had uh, approved that. It'll be interesting though, to see as again, the, the price goes up and up and the province has to scale back what they're taking for their coffers to see, you know, how sustainable that model is quite frankly. But like I said, it, you know, it seems to be working and it's not, um, you know, it's not materially raising prices for New Brunswickers. Well, let's bring all parts of today's show together then, because um, obviously climate is going to be and climate policies and energy policies uh, should be an important part of the budget and should also signal, I think, investments um, in the future, not just the important point of maintaining people's income through the pandemic. And we're going to have a different kind of federal-provincial relationship, hopefully a more stable one after the Supreme Court decision, which will allow the kinds of negotiations uh, for how we do move forward to the next step and how we do get to the critical point of net zero by uh, by 2050. Yeah, and you know, Ed, I'll ask you the most important question I'm sure on everyone's mind, which is, you know, Bill Morneau had his budget shoes. Do we anticipate uh, that Minister Freeland will have, you know, some special budget shoe or other in this budget? The budget shoe uh, <laughs> tradition goes back Decades and decades and decades. I can't remember a budget without, uh, I, I can't even now remember. I used to know where it started, how it started, but I can't remember. Maybe we should make that a question for some of our listeners. Maybe they can help us remember where the budget shoe tradition started in Canada. And I'm sure we will see um, some special footwear coming from Minister Freeland. And I actually can remember a budget where I think the sales tax was taken off footwear. So uh, I think, though, normally it's just a decorative uh, part of the budget, not a policy part. We will see. Indeed, we will. Thanks so much, Ed. Thank you, Katie. And coming up, we have David Dodge. Before we move into our interview, I'd like to thank the Diversity Institute and the Future Skills Center for partnering with the Public Policy Forum to bring you policy speaking in February and March. Both the Diversity Institute and Future Skills Center are valued partners of PPF and their work contributes greatly to the conversation around innovation, skills, diversity, and inclusion in Canada. And we will be having some 
reports coming out soon that we've been working on together on the post-pandemic skills landscape. Today we have David Dodge, economic maestro extraordinaire with us, former Deputy Minister of Finance, former Governor of the Bank of Canada, and Senior Advisor to Bennett Jones LLP. David is a good friend of the Public Policy Forum and author of one of our most influential 2020 reports on the twin deficits, two of them, the fiscal deficit and the current account deficit. Last week, we saw the Ontario and Quebec budgets on top of several other provinces that have also reported, and we now await the federal budget on April 19th. David was the first guest on Policy Speaking exactly a year ago at the beginning of what was then a very new phenomenon of the pandemic and the first policy responses to the crisis. So we're thrilled to have him back on for the first year anniversary. Unthrilled that we still have to talk about a pandemic. Welcome back, David. Uh, good to be back, Ian. So it's been a year. How has Canada done, would you say, compared to other countries in managing the economic aspects of this over the past year? Well, I think I think Canada and and the United States both have taken the the same basic uh, thrust, and that is to uh, allow the unemployment to rise and to provide uh, subsidies uh, to the households and uh, to a lesser extent to business in order to survive. That compares to the European approach, which essentially provided subsidies fundamentally to business to hold people on the payrolls and hence not have as much overt unemployment, uh, but rather have it disguised on the payroll. I think that the basically our North American approach in the end, I think will prove to be sensible that in the end, we will be able to make a readjustment to uh, a new and, and somewhat different economy as we emerge from uh, the COVID period uh, roughly at the end of this year. So I, I would say our approach was sensible and that we did a lot, perhaps slightly more than we needed to do in order to bolster uh, incomes during this period. So from from that standpoint, I would say that one has to rank the Canadian performance very well. Okay. On the health side, uh, obviously not so well. We diddled around far too long at the start and hence uh, left ourselves in a very exposed position vis-a-vis uh, -vis vaccines, which we are now seeing, uh, seeing that we're in trouble uh, in that regard and in trouble relative to most countries in the world, but not relative to Europe, but in, in the same position uh, on the vaccine front there. In terms of our managing the lockdowns, I think that I would not rate our performance uh, very good, but I'm not sure I'd rate anybody's performance uh, very good in the sense that we never were really quite clear what it was that we were trying to accomplish. Were we trying to accomplish simply uh, keeping uh, the level of disease down so that hospitals would not be o overrun? Uh, were we trying to keep the number of deaths down? 
what exactly was it that we were trying to do. And so we ended with an on-again, off-again approach that was never very clear uh, what it, what we were actually aiming at. And I think that, that ended uh, leaving us with poor economic performance, but also poor health performance. In that sense, I would say we weren't worse than the Europeans in that regard. Right. Well, that, that's a rousing statement. We weren't worse than the Europeans. Let's go back to the implications for the economy and, uh, and for the finances of the country. We've seen, you know, recently some uh, provincial budgets, including, you know, the two largest provinces, Quebec and Ontario. And I guess, you know, one of the striking things in, in both of those, besides the fact that deficits go on for uh, a long time, longer in Ontario's case than, than Quebec, is that, you know, neither is talking about spending cuts or tax increases. And both say that the recovery is occurring much faster than they had anticipated. So, you know, I know you've had a close look, particularly at the Ontario budget. What are you making? What are the messages uh, for you as we prepare for a federal one? You know, that everybody looks quickly at the Ontario thing and says, boy, isn't, it, isn't this awful? Haven't, haven't we allowed this debt to GDP ratio? to rise too far, we can take Andrew Coyne's comment that somehow there are no guidelines. I actually don't think the Ontario job is is all that bad in the regard of the broad fiscal parameters. They've used numbers in terms of their projection. If you take the middle one, or, or of course, they have provided the bands. The middle one is really a pretty conservative uh, Certainly, most economists will think that we're going to do actually better than they have projected. And uh, I think at least in the first three years, their interest rate projections are not wildly wrong. We can come back and talk about uh, interest rates in in a moment, but uh, certainly not wildly wrong. I mean, everything after 2024 is, is fiction anyway, so I don't put a lot of stock on what's in there. But if you take take the the initial three year period, you know it's not it's not a terrible picture. And the metric that I I really watch to see whether they're getting offside, and and I've gone back and and recalculated a, a sort of a, a base number and and a higher and lower number, and you know they keep the the public debt charges to revenue ratio down under nine percent over this period. And I think that uh, using reasonable, I would say fairly reasonable interest rates as they get to the end of the period. When you get out and and go out beyond the 24, 23, 24 fiscal year, then I think that you're dealing in in much more uh, uncertain world. And there, but even there using, I think, reasonable parameters, uh, the public debt charge to revenue ratio doesn't climb above 10. So I I would say that they are actually not in terrible position. And I would be actually surprised if the credit rating agencies would give them uh, really a, a very bad mark. Right. Let's just take a pause and go backwards on on nine percent, ten percent, because you know, for people who haven't been following uh, the script as intimately, 
you know, you wrote this report for the Public Policy Forum last September, and you've been talking and further elaborating on, on your thesis here that we need a, a completely different approach to a fiscal anchor. You know, there's certain things we have to be careful not to broach, certain ratios. So why don't, why don't you just explain what the 10% is about? Yeah, so the main problem that governments have, just as households have, is when when their income flows are not enough to support their debt service costs. That's when households get into trouble. That's when, when governments get into trouble. That's when Canadian governments got into trouble at the end of the 80, uh, 1980s or early 1990s. And so that is really... That is really fundamentally the, the, the number that matters economically, but it, it, it really also matters very much politically because when debt service costs eat up a, a very large fraction, increasingly large fraction uh, of revenues, then to, to the ordinary citizen, what's happening is that in any given year, he's paying a dollar in taxes for only 70 or 80 uh, cents worth of services. And that, that is just politically, uh, over time, is, is not sustainable that, that you can do that. So that's why I focus on that particular metric in terms of judging whether a government is in trouble. And while there's no particular magic on the 10%, uh, I just think that history has shown that once you're getting into the territory with that that number rises above ten uh, percent and certainly rises well into the into the double digits, if you will, that politically and economically uh, governments get into trouble. So that's that is the number I watch, and as I said, that at least over the uh, by the period to get to, to 2024, I think uh, Ontario is not in, in a real problem. And then I've just done the calculations beyond that. And, you know, we're using reasonable numbers, which would include an interest rate that is higher than most people today think will be there, that actually Ontario will more or less be okay in the sense that they'll stay more or less under 10%. So I uh, I think that is the right number to look at, and it's very important, very important, I, I really stress this, that you have to measure flows against flows. And the idea of debt to GDP ratio is a, debt is a stock, GDP is a flow, and you can have any any ratio of debt to GDP, which would be sustainable, depending on what interest rate you put in, i.e. depending on how, how your debt charges are growing. And that's, that's why I think we, one should look at it, and uh, that is the metric that I use uh, in assessing uh, both federal and provincial budgets. Okay, well, let me let me ask you one other thing about the provinces, and then we'll move on to the national government. Although this is a question really about uh, about both of them. So you're saying you know, Ontario is more or less all right, and I guess that would apply to most provinces. Obviously, Newfoundland and Labrador has a much more stringent problem, and you know other provinces are in you know varying shape. But but generally, the provinces 
have taken on a lot more debt. They'll have a lot more debt servicing charge. And they this occurs at a time when healthcare costs have been burgeoning for them with an aging population. So is that going to be a sustainable proposition for them? And, and, and I might add, you know, there's a lot of going to be a lot of post-pandemic pressure to do something about long-term care on top of that. So how do you see this as a, you know, many people don't remember you're also former deputy minister of health. So putting your health and finance hats on both at late, how do you see this playing out and what role might it force on Ottawa? Yeah, so I, I think that's a super question. First of all, let me say that the real failure, I think, in this Ontario budget is their projected expenditure track is much lower than realistically they're going to uh, going to deliver. So I look at the whole of the expenditure track, but I look in particular at the health expenditures and, and the health expenditures on a sort of age-adjusted basis. And so when I look at that, I see that the real that Ontario is budgeting to have the the real expenditures on health care, uh, real uh, per capita expenditures on health care falling, falling by about two percent a year as as they go out. and And then, if I look at try doing that on an age adjusted basis, i.e taking taking it, it, it not just per capita, but age-adjusted capitas, if you will, then they, can, they get up as much as 3% a year decline uh, year after year. Uh, well, that's just unrealistic. So the expenditures that they have built in uh, to that budget are just not realistic, and we will not be able to live with them. So my my assessment here is not that the deficit metrics, if you will, that they have used look terrible. Uh, they don't. But I just don't believe that they're going to be able to contain the the spending side, in particular on healthcare, but it's true it's true across the board that, that in fact they're looking at overall spending in real terms per capita falling at two percent a year, year after year after year. And and that's just not real not realistic. So if it's not realistic, uh, does it end up with us um, under uh, financing our healthcare system? Uh, does it end up with us having to raise taxes? Does it change the fiscal arrangements between Ottawa and the provinces? The, the health side, is, the actual spending is done by the provinces. And so are the feds going to kick in? Uh, are, are they going to raise significantly the share of federal spending that goes as transfers to the provinces uh, over time and cuts the share of federal spending that goes to uh, the real services the feds provide to old age, old age pensions and and so on and so forth. I, I just don't don't think that that's realistic. So I think fundamentally, fundamentally, you can do you can do the arithmetic all you want. But you have to be realistic about what a healthcare system can deliver, and I just don't think that they can a healthcare system can generate efficiencies, which they've never been able to do up until now. But but generate efficiencies, but generate efficiencies that actually allow them to reduce 
every year, 2% in real terms, uh, the cost of, the, of delivering those services. So I, I don't think that that is realistic. Uh, I think there are ways to reduce healthcare costs, but uh, to reduce them by 2% per year, uh, year after year is, is just not realistic, which means taxes are going to have to go up at some point, or we're going to have to stand up and say that we're not going to provide even the quality of health care which we currently provide, which many Canadians think is not satisfactory. Neither of them, well, one not a politically uh, easy solution and one not a humanitarian easy solution. So let's leave that right there in that, you know, awful position uh, where we've left and move on to some of the other debates around uh, the upcoming federal budget, April 19th. And I just want to, I just want to set a context that I know you're very familiar with, and that's a debate that's been going on in the United States, largely among center and center-left economists like Harvard's Larry Summers, uh, about whether the Biden administration is in some ways overstimulating consumption, and that this would have the consequence, A, of perhaps not leaving enough money for investment in productive capacity that will, like infrastructure, that will produce future growth in the economy, or B, that it could spark inflation. So what do you make of these arguments and in what way do they apply to uh, the discussion we should be having here in Canada? Yeah, so I think the debate applies absolutely equally for us. So uh, argument A, uh, too much on stimulating consumption, too little on investment. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, it's a real problem uh, in the United States. And I, I think the great fear is now that having uh, basically shot their bolt on bolstering consumption in, in the, whatever they call it, the America Save America Act, that they won't be able to make the investments in infrastructure or in human capital uh, that are really required uh, for the future. So I, I think that's a real problem, and I think it it's potentially is a very real problem uh, for us. In in the pandemic, there wasn't much alternative uh, other than to boost household incomes. Uh, but going forward, there really was an alternative. And I think most, most economists would argue that uh, too much emphasis has been put on further bolstering of consumption uh, as we look out over the next two years uh, and leaving no room, if you will, or not enough room. Uh, to bolster investment over that period. So I think that would be an argument that I would think is largely agreed to by economists. Certainly it was an argument that I would forcefully make. So if you go to part B, which is, I think, uh, which is, I think, a more inside, inside the beltway of, of, of economic uh, argument and, and more, more difficult to deal with in in sort of plain English, if you will, going forward. But I think fundamentally uh, the argument here uh, and the argument that Larry made, for for example, Larry Summers made, and a number of others from from the sort of democratic sympathy uh, group is that we are now uh, going to be pressing the limits, productive capacity 
as we go forward, we are going to generate, we're at the risk of generating considerable inflation, not and not just in the short run, where maybe we'll have it during a period of adjustment, but it, more in the medium term, because we're going to, expectations are going to become unanchored for, with respect to inflation, that indeed we're going to have real increases and in, you know, price, real uh, prices of of a number of industrial inputs, and so that, that we may be headed into a period that looks a lot more like the 1960s, where uh, you will recall the Americans were trying to fight a war in Vietnam and a war on poverty at the same time, um, which resulted in inflation. So that that is the, the sort of argument that, that is there. I think it it is a very real worry. And my my component of that uh, real worry comes actually much further out the time scale, uh, looking to the end of the 2020s, when indeed the baby boomers all start to turn, not just turn 65 any longer, but turn 85 and 90. And that's where the real costs come uh, on that side. And at the same time, we have a falling uh, share of the population, which is in the active labor force. So I think there are real uh, potentials for inflation uh, out, out there in the future, and we really have to uh, bear that in mind, which is why I said just a minute ago, uh, I think when you look out on the Ontario budget, uh, for example, that one cannot be very sanguine about uh, where things are going to be as we get farther out the decade. Well, you're making me feel very non-sanguine, I must say that. So if we were having a discussion now inside the government about uh, about a budget, which I think, you know, seems to be a, a quite a monumental budget, what would be the really tough choices uh, coming up on the final decision-making that, that we would be struggling with? Well... Just before I turn to that, let me just finish the last bit. In the end, we're going to have, we as households, consumers, we are going to have to pay higher taxes. Uh, my preference would be uh, in, in order to have these these uh, very important services, my preference would be raise consumption taxes, uh, raise the uh, HST in order to raise that. Uh, and to make sure, A, we can provide the services, and B, that we make the investments we need to make. So that, that's where I would be, and that's where I would be uh, for all governments, including the federal government, uh, that that, in the end, is probably where we're, we're going to have to end up. And I would hope uh, that they would have the political guts to be able to say, yes, we're not going to raise taxes next year or uh, this coming year, simply because we're still working our way out of the pandemic. But let, let's be very clear uh, that at some point in the fairly near future, uh, we're going to have to do that. So that, I, I would I would dearly love them to say that. They won't, but um, I would dearly love them to say that. And I actually, the economist in me, says that that would not be uh, terrible politics, but uh, that's a different story. Should what should they do? Well, first of all, yeah. What will they say? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, first of all, they've got to deal with the next year, which is still very uncertain uh, with this fiscal year, which is still very uncertain. It's, it is just, it is not that clear uh, that in, by the third quarter, we're going to be having rip-roaring growth that, uh, that now, if you look at the forecast from TD or Scotia, they would have, have that starting in the third quarter of this year. I, I think there, there, are, uh, there are very real uncertainties. We'll get out of this, but whether we get out of this in the third quarter or whether it takes till, uh, till the end of the winter, uh, of next winter to get through it, uh, I, I think there, there are very, very real, real debates. Secondly, uh, they, we really do have to deal with the fact that we've had a service sector uh, that has been decimated. And we're going to have to plug plug that hole uh, for a while because even if people begin to start to go back to restaurants or begin to be willing to climb on aircraft, it will take a while to adjust. So the short run outlook is still pretty difficult. And and I don't I, I would think it's not not unreasonable for the government simply to stand up and say, look, we've got to focus on that. Here's what we're doing to make sure that we're going to get through that and that by uh, by next spring uh, that we will be in a position to really uh, begin to grow again. So that's what we're going to focus on. And once we know that we're through that, we'll come back to you next spring uh, and we'll tell you then where we're going to go. More or less, that's the Biden approach that he has taken. Uh, so let's get through this. Let's be sure we're out of it. Let's put all our efforts in getting through it, and then we'll come back. Uh, we'll come back uh, in in the spring next year, or or in the fall next year, or at some point, and and figure out basically how we're going to go forward. And and I I think that that is not a totally unreasonable way. And Fundamentally, if you look at at what the Ontario folks have done, that that's essentially what what they have done. They don't have the plans, uh, the growth plans for the future. Uh, they they're going to come once they know they're through uh, this, and uh, I I don't think that's totally un, un unreasonable. So that may be where the federal government is. I would much prefer them to come go out and say that than to say. We have to extrapolate all of the problems that we've encountered uh, during the uh, during the pandemic period on out into the future. All of a sudden, we've got to have everything nailed down. We've got to have a, a child care program forever and ever. We've got to have a health program forever and ever. We've got to we've got to be able to deal with have special features uh, of what we do in. Uh, because women have been dealt very badly, harshly in in this uh, pandemic period. Because those those are features of the pandemic more so than they are features of the very long term. And uh, we really do have to make some very important investments, both um, government investments, and even more importantly, we've got to we know our private sector has to make some very important investments. And we've got to make room 
for for them to do that and to have uh, have a set of policies that that uh, facilitate it. Are they really more features of the pandemic, or are they features that have we've tolerated for a long time that the pandemic has has exposed? And you know we've had low labor market participation relative to men by women for you know a persistent problem uh, for many years. Childcare aggravating that. I mean, many of these issues have been have been uh, around for a long time. Perhaps it's the mentality and the determination that's changed. Well, first of all, I'm not sure that the that quite right on that. In fact, for many years, the participation rate of women relative men has been rising and rising fairly smartly. Uh, the the bad part has been the part participation rate of men has been slowly falling over that over that period. So I think you've got to focus on real problems. And and is it childcare? Well, I'm not so sure that that the the real problem is childcare. I would certainly certainly agree and argue very strongly that we have to invest more in in the early years for children, in particular poor children. Um, and but the ones who who argue strongly for childcare tend to be for the middle class women, right? Which is not 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 where necessarily the kids are suffering because of the the position uh, of those households. So I would argue absolutely we should be increasing uh, our emphasis on uh, early childhood development, in particular for those in, in children from disadvantaged households in one way or another. Absolutely. But that's not a child care argument. Child care argument is an argument about doing something to uh, allow folks uh, greater freedom, uh, people who have children greater freedom for themselves, which is a nice thing to do. Uh, but that, that to me is not nearly as fundamental as making sure that those kids get a head start on life. But I think, I think one of your basic arguments here is that um, if we're gonna be able to afford that and afford healthcare, and we don't want taxes to uh, to really go out of control. That uh, we better get the investments in the growth of the economy so that we can finance those kinds of social improvements. I mean, that's you know that's really the core of of, of the argument you're making, isn't it? Absolutely. That means investing in plant and equipment. It means investing in infrastructure. It means investing in um, in intellectual property, and very importantly, it means investing in people, in their skills, um, and not just the skills of those that uh, are in the labor force or or in universities, but uh, in the development of very young kids, the early years, especially those kids that uh, come from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. Okay, well, David, I want to thank you, as always, for your insight. There's so many more things uh, I'd love to talk about, housing bubbles and interest rate sensitivities and the high debt of uh, of not just the public uh, side, but of uh, the private side for Canadians. But let me just finish with, with the question of the fiscal anchor, which we've talked about a number of times that earlier in the conversation, the 10%. So Ottawa took off its fiscal anchor because of the crisis which was a debt to GDP form of anchor. 
do you expect to see a new fiscal anchor put on in this budget? The answer is I don't know. Um, and if they were to put one on, I would hope, I would hope that it would be what I would call the right one, uh, which is the one that uh, constrains, uh, would constrain the flow of debt service charges to, uh, to their, to revenue. Uh, because that's the one in the end uh, that really matter. And to do that, then they have to have a reasonable outlook, a reasonable uh, forecast looking forward uh, on interest rates. And that means they better, uh, in doing that, have interest rates that uh, are not uh, one or two percent below uh, growth rates uh, as they've been in the past. Uh, as we discussed in in uh, that earlier paper uh, on the twin deficits. Yeah. Okay, David, thank you so much for being with us uh, again today. We can both say happy anniversary to Policy Speaking, and we can uh, thank you for uh, all the insights that you've helped share uh, with the Public Policy Forum and through the Public Policy Forum. And uh, I think we're going to have an opportunity to speak again in the, uh, in the weeks after the budget, so I, I look forward to that. Well, I do too, Ed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. At this point in the podcast, we'd like to take a moment to highlight one of our members that has gone above and beyond the call of duty in terms of their ongoing contribution to a stronger and more resilient Canada. We are PPF proud of our member, Simon Fraser University. Towards Equity, SFU's Public Square's 2021 Community Summit Series will take place online throughout the year and will bring the university into conversation with local and global communities. Since 2012, SFU Public Square has convened an annual gathering to bring together the SFU community, engaged citizens and partners to discuss and act on a pressing issue from isolation disconnection to the future of work to confronting the disinformation age. In the face of exposed and amplified inequities due to the pandemic, the summit asks, what must we understand and do to recover equitably and reimagine our systems to confront the intersecting crises of inequality, systemic racism, and climate change? We wish SFU all the best as they facilitate these important conversations. PPF, I think, as you all know, is a membership-based organization. If you are a member, we appreciate your support. If you're not a member, well, what are you waiting for? Come join us. We'd love to have you aboard. There's great two-way value to being part of the PPF family. So visit the membership page of our website, ppform.ca, to find out more. And that is a wrap. If you like this episode, leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Reviews help us be seen by new listeners and be heard by new listeners, too. To that end, share it with a friend or let us know on Twitter at ppforumca. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who make this podcast happen. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.